Welcome to the Water Resources Podcast. I am Bridget Scanlon. In this podcast, we discuss water challenges with leading experts, including topics on extreme climate events, overexploitation, and potential solutions towards more sustainable management. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Lorenzo Rosa to the Water Resources Podcast. Lorenzo is a principal investigator at the Department of Global Ecology at Carnegie Institute for Science at Stanford. And prior to that, he was a postdoc fellow at ETH in Zurich. He has a PhD in environmental science from UC Berkeley and a BS and MS in environmental engineering from Politecnico di Milano in Italy. Lorenzo has received numerous awards, including the 2021 American Geophysical Union Science for Solutions Award. And I think that is fantastic because I would really like to, to focus a lot of discussion on solutions. And then he was also listed among the most influential young leaders in science and technology of 2020 by Forbes, 30 under 30. So Lorenzo's research focuses on potential benefits and unintended climate and environmental consequences of innovations engineered to satisfy increasing global demands for water, energy, and food. And today we're going to focus on water and food issues. And I hope we're going to discuss green, blue, and economic water scarcity under past and future climates and to potential solutions to building more resilient water and food security. Thank you so much for joining me, Lorenzo. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Bridget. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Right. So I very much enjoyed reading many of your papers and you're so prolific that that was a bit of a career. But maybe we have first started the discussions about scarcity estimates and water scarcity and food scarcity. Maybe you can first describe what you mean by scarcity and how you estimate scarcity. Yes. So scarcity is defined when we have a supply that is lower than demand. And you can quantify scarcity at different time scales and at different spatial scales. And uh, if we uh, talk about water scarcity, we mean that water demand in a certain region and in a certain time is uh, greater than uh, water availability. And so in these regions, there is an unsustainable use of water resources. So humans are using water that should be used by other systems like ecosystems or humans are using more water than the one that is available from the annual renewable cycle of water. If we talk about food, we can think about a similar concept. So for food scarcity, we mean that we don't have enough food to meet the demand. And importantly for food, we need to consider also the four pillars of food security that are not only availability, so you have enough food to meet demand, but are also accessibility, utilization, and stability. For accessibility, I mean that people need the economic means to uh, buy the food, to get the food. It's not only necessary that there is enough food in a certain uh, region or countries. Utilization is more about the nutritional value of the food. So we need the food that has enough nutritious value to uh, meet biophysical requirement by our bodies. And stability is also very important and uh, is needed because, as for example, we saw last year with uh, the price shock after the invasion of Russia in Ukraine, we need stability in food because we need permanent and durable access to food. 
Right. And so uh, it's important in how we define supply and demand. And Marilyn Falkenmark, in her water footprint calculations uh, way back when, she indicated water scarcity when demand exceeded uh, 40% of supply. But so you, in your calculations, then you just, you simply look at a demand versus supply, not a fraction of it. Yes. So in, in my calculation, first of all, our global analysis at the pixel level. So we divide the world in a mesh of small squares that usually are 10 kilometers, 10 times 10 kilometers or 50 times 50 kilometers. And here we basically solve a simple hydrological balance where you have precipitation, that is the water that is going into the system. And then we have evaporation, that is the water uh, that is going out of the systems. And from this, we can quantify how much uh, water is uh, present in uh, rivers, lakes, and aquifers. So this is the water available. And then we have the component that is the human component. So it's the water used by humans, which is mainly from irrigation. On a global level, irrigated agriculture uh, accounts for 90% of uh, water consumption. And then we have other uses like domestic, industrial, manufacturing, and energy. We can basically solve a balance, hydrological balance, to quantify if there is enough water locally available to meet the human water demand. And importantly, there is also a fraction that needs to be left to the environment and is so-called environmental flows. And so this fraction needs to be left in the environment to preserve aquatic ecosystems. In my calculation, I, I use different methodologies depending on the spatial scale and the temporal scale. But usually around 60 to 80% of the water uh, available, so of the renewable water available, should be left in the environment to preserve environmental flows. Right. And we're increasingly recognizing that many years ago, we didn't acknowledge that we needed to leave water for environmental flows. And so then we overestimated the supplies and probably underestimated scarcity issues. So your work, you have covered both rain-fed cropland and irrigated cropland, and then you also emphasize economic water scarcity. So maybe we'll start, first start off with describing green water scarcity related to rain-fed agriculture. Yes, so first, it's very important to distinguish water into green water and blue water. So green water is the root zone soil moisture, and this is basically precipitation water that is retained in the, in the soil and can only be used by plants. Humans cannot use this water directly. And so this water is called green water. And then we have blue water, that is the water that humans use in their activities directly. And this is blue water. So this is the water that we take from rivers, lakes, and aquifers. And when we talk about green water scarcity, we mean that rainfall is not enough to meet crop water requirements in agriculture. So in other words, the rainfall regime is not sufficient to meet the demand of crops of water. So in these regions, if you don't provide additional water through irrigation, you face green water scarcity. And agricultural production, therefore, is reduced. So productivity is not at potential. And just to give you an idea, about half of crop plants uh, globally face green water scarcity at least one month per year. So here you don't have enough rainfall to meet crop water demand. And again, productivity is reduced. 
when we talk about blue water scarcity, we talk about water used by humans directly. And in this case, it's mainly irrigation, as I mentioned, but also domestic, industrial, and energy use. And where blue water scarcity, when human water use is larger than availability after accounting for the water that you need to live in, in rivers, lakes, and aquifers to preserve uh, aquatic ecosystems. So green water scarcity then refers to water scarcity in dryland cropland systems. And so the rain-fed croplands account for about 80% of global cropland and uh, produce about 60% of the food, whereas I guess irrigated accounts for 20% of the cropland and produces 40% of the food. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. this is correct. So irrigation on average is uh, as twice as productive as uh, rain-fed croplands because ER croplands, they can have a stable and reliable supply of water. And so they are less uh, susceptible to uh, climate variability in precipitation, but also temperature. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, only 20% of global croplands are irrigated, but 40% of food is produced over irrigated croplands. At the same time, uh, rain-fed croplands, uh, they produce uh, 60% of the food. So they are very important and they deserve a lot of attention, especially in the context of climate change. Because under climate change, we will have an increase in temperature and also a change in precipitation patterns. So in many regions, we will have an exacerbation of uh, uh, green water scarcity. Right. So you have looked at changes in green water scarcity under different temperature regimes like 1.5 degrees C warming or 3 degrees C warming and how that would increase water scarcity. So your baseline is 50% of rain-fed cropland is currently water scarce. It's not producing at uh, potential yield and considered water scarce. So then when you increase the temperature then by 1.5 to 3 degrees, uh, how, how much does the uh, green water scarcity change? Yes. So first, I would like to explain why we choose 1.5 and 3 degrees warming and what they represent. So 1.5 degrees warming is basically the Paris Agreement uh, climate target and is the goal that global economies have set to limit uh, warming. So we are aiming as a, a global economy to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees compare uh, to the pre-industrial era. While 3 degrees warming is basically the warming we are going to reach if we continue as business as usual policies. So 1.5 and 3 degrees warming, they represent the two scenarios where we are going to be likely end up in this uh, century. And if we talk about green water scarcity under 1.5 degrees warming, our calculation basically have found that we will have an additional 100 million hectares affected by green water scarcity from the current 400 million hectares. Okay? And so these 100 more million hectares of croplands facing green water scarcity are mainly located in Russia, Argentina, Ukraine, and in some regions of the Midwest of the United States. And we also quantify the number of people that are fed over, over these uh, croplands that uh, will face green water scarcity under 1.5 degrees warming. And basically, we found that climate change due to green water scarcity will affect food production for 340 million people under 1.5 degrees warming. While under 3 degrees warming, which is uh, where we are going to eat uh, global warming uh, according to current uh, emission scenarios, 
we find that uh, an additional 150 million hectares compared to baseline conditions will face uh, green water scarcity. The regions mostly impacted are going to be northeastern, US, and Russia. And this additional warming will affect food production for about half billion more people compared to the 1.5 degrees warming. So here, I think it's also very important to highlight that different temperature targets will have very different impacts on agricultural productivity and also on adaptation. So on how much adaptation we will have to do. And, very, and as you can see, there is a disproportional need of adaptation from 1.5 to 3 degrees warming. So again, here shows how important it is to keep global warming within 1.5 degrees Celsius. Right. And so when you say where the impacts are going to be, I think it's important to recognize that these are areas that probably have large rain-fed agriculture. And so places like India, where a lot of the cropland is irrigated or the North China Plain or regions like that, won't be as impacted because they're already irrigated. This is a very good point. So when I listed the countries like Russia, US, Argentina, uh, these are countries that obviously they, are, they have a very large extent of agriculture. And, and so when you make a global statistics, uh, the areas more impacted are going to be uh, in, in these regions. And, and then obviously there are other regions like China and, and India where agriculture is already mainly irrigated. So they are not going to face green water scarcity because they already face it today, right? But they face today huge blue water scarcity. So in, in these regions, irrigation is uh, unsustainable because it's depleting groundwater stocks or usurping environmental flows. So not leaving enough water in rivers, lakes for aquatic ecosystems. And just to give you an example of environmental flows depletions, so many rivers worldwide for some months per year don't reach the ocean. One example here in the US is the Colorado River that does not reach Mexico and the Gulf of Mexico because there is so much consumption of water upstream, mainly for irrigation along the Colorado River, that does not indeed reach the ocean. And so this is an example, is the emblematic example of environmental flows depletion. But uh, along with the Colorado, there are many other rivers, like the Yellow Rivers in China, the Nile River, and many others that are so strongly depleted that we have environmental flows depletion. Right, right. So when you looked at impacts of temperature increases, climate change on green water scarcity, these temperature increases may result in expansion of rain-fed cropland. I know you haven't looked at it in your paper, but you're maybe doing some current research. And so that would be interesting to see what impact those temperature increases have in northern latitudes, maybe Canada and, and places like that. Yes, so this is a good point. And we are actually working on a study on this. So basically, we are quantifying how warming is going to benefit some regions compared to others. And obviously, tropical and subtropical regions are going to be strongly impacted by warming because the optimal temperature to grow crops is going to shift to higher temperature and so it's going to go out the niche optimal temperature to grow these crops. While for other regions, uh, like Russia and Canada, we are finding that for some crops like wheat and barley that are mainly winter crops, there is going to be a substantial increase in productivity because indeed the temperature is going to uh, warm in this region and it's going to end up in the optimal niche of temperature. 
And so these regions uh, close to the poles, uh, like Russia, and for Russia, I mean the regions uh, in Russia north of China, so between Mongolia and China, so that region and Canada, but also Argentina in the south, uh, are going to be winners. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see what are going to be the productivity implications, global food security, and the trade implications, if these countries actually are going to invest in these regions and intensify and expand agricultural productivity there. Right. It really could change the picture quite a bit. And then because rain-fed cropland is so important, I mean, it's 80% of the cropland, you mentioned then that there are ways to adapt to green water scarcity. Maybe you can describe some of these nature-based solutions to try to make the systems more resilient and uh, reduce green water scarcity. Yes. So basically, we have green water scarcity when there is an issue between supply and demand of water right, as we uh, mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. And to reduce green water scarcity, there are some ways uh, that uh, farmers can implement. And some of these ways basically aim to reduce evaporation and increase infiltration. So in this way, you increase the moisture, the green water in the rooted zone. And um, the majority of these uh, techniques are so-called green approaches because they don't require a large infrastructure and they are a soft path to adaptation in agriculture, okay? And for example, we have solutions that aim to increase infiltration. So for example, in regions where you have steep agriculture, like when you are in hilly areas or in mountains, when it rains, you have a lot of runoff. And this water, when there is runoff, does not have enough time to infiltrate in the soil and be retaining the moisture. So by, for example, creating terracing, contouring, and you can slow the runoff and so let the water infiltrate in in the soil. And most of these techniques are indigenous techniques. For example, pitting is a technique that is indigenous in the Sahel region. And the technique is called Zai pitting. And basically farmers, they create holes in the farm with their tools. And when it rains, and when it rains, it rains very in a very high rate there, the rain, instead of creating a runoff, is going to form these small ponds. So it has time to infiltrate in the soil and therefore have more green water later in the dry season to meet the crop water demand without uh, irrigation. Then there are other uh, techniques that can reduce evaporation and, uh, for example, no-till farming, mulching and cover crops basically create a shading uh, in the soil and they reduce uh, evaporation. Another technique uh, which is more technological uh, is called agrivoltaics and basically these techniques consist in combining combining solar uh, photovoltaics panels with uh, agriculture. And so you have the mutual benefit of producing renewable energy from solar, but at the same time, the solar panels, they create a shading to reduce temperatures below the panels, so where they are the crops, and therefore reduce evaporation. There are also other uh, ways to increase green water availability. And these are, for example, weed control. So weeds as well, they, to grow, they use water. So by removing weeds, you can leave only water to crops. So you remove the non-beneficial water that is used in a non-productive way by weeds. And then the other way that can be adopted is to switch to less water-intensive crops. For example, wheat 
is less water intensive than uh, corn or uh, sorghum and millet are less water intensive than uh, wheat. So by switching uh, crops, you can save water. But here then comes other issues like societal issues because uh, you have cultural preferences and uh, in some regions you need to grow some types of food because the local population are adapted to eat that kind of food. But uh, ideally, switching crops, uh, you can uh, save water and you can save a lot of water. Yeah, we can solve a lot of problems on a desktop analysis, but then we have to consider the socioeconomic factors and it becomes another challenge and maybe much more difficult to implement to get behavioral changes and to consider the societal needs. So that's quite a lot of potential solutions then to address green water scarcity. And we see maps of these oftentimes. I mean, the lowest plateau, there's a lot of terracing. It's steep topography. And so they do a lot of terracing. And I see the uh, pitting is kind of like a miniature managed recharge type of system that gives the time for water to infiltrate and also reduces erosion, which is a big issue when you have these intense rains and you lose soil and you lose nutrients and you lose organic matter. So there can be multiple benefits to these approaches. And the nice thing about them is that they can be adopted in a decentralized way and that they're not that expensive. But as you mentioned earlier, in terms of water use, irrigation is the elephant in the room. And even though it only accounts for 20% of cropland, it generates about 40% of the food. And then you mentioned that it's uh, 90% of global water consumption and 70% of global water withdrawal. So really, if we could manage irrigated agriculture better, we could help resolve maybe many water issues or overexploitation of water. Maybe you can describe how you come up with the, the estimates of blue water scarcity and what you consider in your calculations. Yes. For blue water scarcity, for irrigation, we, we first have to quantify the irrigation water consumption. And for irrigation water consumption, we develop uh, in the PhD group uh, where I was, we develop a, a crop water model that uh, basically quantify by crop uh, the demand of water needed by this crop. And we quantify the demand of water divided by green water. And if there is enough green water, obviously you don't need irrigation. But if there is not enough green water, you need the supplemental water. And uh, the hypothesis here is that the supplemental water is met with uh, irrigation. So over irrigated croplands, the assumption is that farmers irrigate, providing these supplemental water needed to, to meet the crop water requirements. And we are able to quantify these from temperature and precipitation, solving at a pixel level a water balance. Okay, And we use the Penman-Montit equation to calculate evaporation on temperature, latent heat, wind speed, and obviously crop type during the growing season of the crop. And then to quantify water availability, we solve a water balance starting from precipitation. So from precipitation, we know the, the digital elevation model, we know the soil type, so we can estimate the runoff, making a difference between precipitation and evaporation. 
And once we generate the runoff, we need to quantify the runoff and how it's going to move downstream based on the digital elevation model. And we have to quantify this also considering upstream human water use, okay? Because if upstream you use all the water, downstream you're not going to get the water. So solving this flow accumulation algorithm, so it's called like this, flow accumulation algorithm, we're able to quantify renewable water availability. As I mentioned before, from renewable water availability, there are different thresholds to quantify environmental flows. So a fraction of renewable water availability has to be left in the environment to preserve environmental flows. And this water remaining is compared to water consumption from human, from human uses, mainly irrigation. And when the water consumption indeed is greater than water availability, we have blue water scarcity. Right. And so we have read a lot in the past about these hotspots of overexploitation, North China Plain, Northwest India, Central Valley in California, where we've been irrigating a lot in these semi-arid regions. I mean, they have a lot of positives in terms of crop production, in terms of solar energy, good soils, and we can add the nutrients through fertilizers. But then initially, when they started irrigating, for example, in the Central Valley in California, they thought there was lots of water because it was under artesian pressure and it was flowing at the surface. But then over time, then they realized that they were depleting the aquifers. So we could grow more, we could irrigate more humid regions where uh, water could be used more sustainably. And I think you've mentioned in the past that there's been an expansion of irrigated agriculture in the humid eastern U.S. Have you seen that in other regions also? Yes, so these are very important. So irrigation is an important adaptation strategy to global warming. We've been assisting to global warming, right, in the past uh, few years because current temperature is about 1.3, 1.4 degrees warmer compared to pre-industrial era. So we are already affected by global warming. Indeed, in some regions of the world, they are expanding irrigation as an adaptation strategy. For example, in the US, we've been assisting in the past 20 years of a moving of irrigation eastward. So in the southwest, irrigation is contracting, but is increasing in these regions in the eastern part of the U.S. And this is indeed because the farmers, they have more reliable access to water. Obviously, they have also technology, they have irrigation, they have pumping technology, which was not available, for example, uh, uh, until 80 years ago. They are uh, expanding irrigation because it's very important also as an insurance. So some insurance company, they actually require farmers uh, to be insured to have irrigation systems. And so, for example, this is happening in the United States, but there are other regions in the world where irrigation is actually expanding or where there are projects where institutions like the World Bank are investing to expand the irrigation, so to build infrastructure to expand irrigation. For example, there are projects in Ethiopia, in Kenya, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, where they are actually working on expanding irrigation. And in some of my work, I quantified where water will be locally available in the future to expand irrigation, and where this water will be locally available to expand irrigation in a sustainable way, so without depletion of groundwater and environmental flows. And basically solving the same water balance that I mentioned before, but running the the model using climate inputs from 1.5 and 3 degrees warming, we were able to quantify globally and map globally where 
there are these hotspots for uh, irrigation expansion. I can list some of these countries. So previously, I mentioned that the United States will be strongly impacted by green water scarcity. Yes. But uh, the United States actually is going to be also the country with the greatest potential for sustainable irrigation expansion. Uh, about 40 million hectares will be suitable for irrigation expansion in the US, mainly in the, in the northeast of the US, because water here will be locally available to meet uh, irrigation water requirements. Similarly, also in Russia, Brazil, Nigeria, and India, we will have some potential in the future to expand irrigation. So some countries obviously are going to be very strongly impacted by green water scarcity under warming, but they have at the same time the potential to adapt if they invest in adaptation strategies that can be green water management technologies, as we mentioned, terracing, pitting, agrivoltaics, no-tillage, but also at the same time, they can have the potential to adapt using more infrastructure-based approaches like uh, irrigation, which obviously are more expensive from the economic point of view, but also they provide a, a more reliable uh, production. Right, right. So, uh, I mean, irrigation makes you sort of independent of the climate. It makes you more climate resilient. And then expanding into these areas where it can be done more sustainably is really helpful. And I know in my own work, we looked at irrigation in the Mississippi embayment aquifer system and also compared it to the Central Valley. And actually, they were pumping more groundwater in the Mississippi embayment than they were in the Central Valley. But when they were pumping that groundwater, they were capturing surface water because the Mississippi is a humid region. And so they could do it more sustainably and not have these uh, huge groundwater depletion that we've seen in the uh, Central Valley. And I do remember that many years ago talking to the water use people at the USGS, and they mentioned that in Alabama, the banks were requiring the farmers to install irrigation to make sure that they could pay back their loans. So whether it's the insurance industry or the banks, they want that uh, reliability. And I guess irrigation is uh, one of the ways to do that. In your work, Lorenzo, you mentioned that demand for food production will possibly double by 2050. And you also talk about a number of ways to meet that increasing demand, which is going to be very challenging. Maybe you could describe some of those approaches. Yes. So we are facing a huge challenge that indeed we will need to double food demand by 2050. Or... Uh, in other words, in the next 30 years, uh, we will need to produce the same amount of food that we did cumulatively over the past uh, 8,000 years. So this is a huge challenge in addition to climate change. And to meet this demand, obviously, there are different ways. One way is to intensify agricultural productivity. So it's basically to produce more over current croplands. And this is because in many regions, especially in the global south, uh, croplands and agricultural productivity are not uh, at potential. So by providing water with irrigation and by providing nutrients, mainly with fertilizers, these croplands have the potential to increase agricultural productivity and feed billions more people. And this is the concept of gap closure or sustainable intensification of agriculture. And then uh, this concept is... Uh, opposite to the other concept, which is agricultural extensification. So for this, we mean that we expand agricultural land in regions where before we were uh, not doing agriculture. For example, the deforestation in the Amazon rainforest was, uh, is an example of 
uh, agricultural expansion. So here we use more land to produce uh, food. And the opposite concept of uh, intensification, we use uh, the same amount of land or less land, but here we produce more food. And then there are, uh, and these are uh, techniques uh, to increase production from the supply point of view. There are also ways to meet this future demand uh, considering the demand point of view. And these are more social techniques. For example, reducing meat consumption, reducing uh, animal-based products can uh, indeed uh, reduce the amount of crop plants we need and the amount of uh, crops we need to grow. The other way is to reduce food waste. 40% of global food today is wasted. So if we just reduce food waste from 40 to 30%, we can feed um, several million more people uh, per, per year and at the same time have lower uh, impacts because that 40% of food that is wasted is also water, is also energy, is also greenhouse gas emissions. So it's all connected. And so these are the main techniques. Then there is also another technique that is very controversial, which is uh, the, about controlling uh, population. So in, in some countries, basically we have uh, high fertility rates, for example, in the Sahel region, and we publish actually a comment in Nature where basically we lay out the issues that this region is facing. And one of these is indeed that they have a booming population. And this is because mostly of the conditions of women. So in here, women are not educated and they have, in many cases, the first child at 13, 14 years old. And the fertility rate for a woman varies about 8 to 10 kids. So it has been proven that by sending women to schools, the fertility rate decreases. So uh, in this commentary, for example, we show how helping these uh, young girls can actually not only improve the life of these women, but also have the benefit of uh, reducing this issue of overpopulation and at the same time increase food security in the region. Right. So, so that's a lot of different approaches, I guess. So your two main approaches are either intensification or extensification of agriculture. And intensification then will probably mean more irrigation, increased fertilizer use to close the yield gap that we find in many regions today. And then extensification, I'm not sure how much opportunity there is for extensification, except maybe you said earlier, we could expand crop production in northern climates with changing temperatures, possibly. And then, so both of those are on the supply side. And then on the demand side, reducing food waste, post-harvest losses, being able to have refrigeration and energy sources to manage food so that we don't lose so much of it would be great, especially considering that it's currently about 40% of food production. And then that also includes all the other footprints that you mentioned, energy, carbon, greenhouse gases, and all of those sorts of things. And I think one of the reasons that women have reduced opportunities to become educated and stuff in developing countries is because oftentimes they spend a lot of their time collecting water from distant sources and stuff. And so if they had readily available water, then they could uh, spend their time in school rather than walking uh, miles to get, fetch water. So... It's easy on paper to see what we can do, but then it's another thing to actually realize some of those changes. 
Another aspect that you mentioned that you've looked at in your work is large-scale storage of water in reservoirs and how that helps irrigation. And I'm not sure if you looked at that also with the future projections and projected increases in reservoir storage. Yes. So this is a part of work that we recently started after we quantified where you can potentially expand irrigation under warming. And basically, from that analysis in 2020, we found that, yes, there will be still potential to meet uh, irrigation water demand in the future, but there will be a huge intra-annual variability in uh, water availability. So while today we can meet uh, water demand within a few weeks, within a few months, in the future, you will have maybe all the water available in January, and then you need it in the summer season uh, when you have uh, agriculture. So this uh, all brings uh, in the issue that you need to store water from the wet season where when you have surplus to the dry season when you have a water gap. And one way to meet uh, indeed this water gap is uh, through water storage. And recently we quantified this using historical climate considering large dams. So large dams, today there are about 6,000 large dams worldwide and the other 3,000 are planned or under construction. And, and basically, we quantify the water that is contained in these uh, reservoirs that can be used for irrigation, because obviously a fraction of this water is used for hydropower or other uses like recreation. So considering the water available in these reservoirs for irrigation, we quantify how much dam-based reservoir can contribute to uh, irrigation and uh, food production. And uh, we did it only under current climate conditions. We are currently working on future climate conditions, considering uh, not only large dams, but also small dams or check dams, or more in general, water storage. So how much water storage we will need? Is there enough water storage to meet the water gap we will have in a certain uh, time along the year? So I guess what you're saying is that you're seeing increasing seasonal amplitude of water availability and to resolve the temporal disconnect between supply in the winter and demand in the summer, then we need to store water. Traditionally, that's been surface reservoirs, but maybe in the future, maybe more small check dams or even groundwater storage. We've depleted a lot of aquifers and that creates a reservoir that we could fill that the Central Valley is looking at to store water. And I think even Oregon with their reducing snow availability are, I mean, earlier snow melt, they are using managed aquifer recharge to help resolve that temporal disconnect to store the snow melt for the demands in the late summer for crop yield. So a lot of different ways to manage. I would like to ask you just briefly, you used a lot of different tools and data to do these analysis. And maybe you could just briefly, and I think you've maybe already described it, but you have developed a databases of crop water needs over time historically and using some of your water balance models and make those data available. I think that's really nice to make data accessible to others. Yes. So in my work, obviously, when we publish, our goal is to provide data. So they are mainly just spatial data. So they are maps that we provide in the data availability of, of our study. For example, in the past, we provided uh, irrigation water requirements by year, by crop, under current and future climate. We provide the extent of where you have blue water scarcity, green water scarcity, economic water scarcity. 
at annual time step or monthly time step under current and future climate. So we provide this data and they are actually being used because, for example, there are institutions like I mentioned before, the World Bank are actually using this data to start their project. No? So they find where there are these regions that have, they have potential and then they go more local scale. They are collect with local census data of agriculture and basically they refine the quantification and did more at the global level for uh, their uh, projects more at the, at the local or uh, regional level. So they are actually being used and they have an impact and this makes me very happy. I think the main issue with these global studies is that uh, we rely, all of us working on this topic, we rely on maps, geospatial maps of irrigation around the year 2000. And so this is a big issue because uh, irrigation is 90% of water use, but we are more than 20 years behind. So I think there is a need to update these maps and create um, updated irrigation maps to better inform decision makings around uh, water and uh, food security issues. And I think you mentioned when we talked previously that you've been doing that in some countries and that you don't, you think it's feasible. It's not a huge task. It's doable. Maybe we should just invest in that, I think. Yes, I think this can be a good project. You know, like for example, we recently did a project in collaboration with the World Bank to map irrigation in Ukraine. And obviously, this is a project that started once Russia invaded Ukraine. And the idea is to uh, build uh, back better in, in Ukraine. And one of the main uh, programs of this uh, reconstruction plan is indeed around agriculture and irrigated agriculture. So the first question is how much is irrigated? How much irrigation was lost because of the conflict? And basically, we were able to map at a very high resolution irrigation in 2000 before the invasion, so in 2021. And also using remote sensing, we were able to see what happened in 2022 and 2023. For example, we found that about 2% of agriculture is irrigated in Ukraine, was irrigated before the invasion, only 2%. And due to the invasion, a lot of irrigated agriculture is located indeed in regions that were part of the conflict of the invasion. So uh, in 2022, the Ukraine lost a lot of irrigation. And also this year, after in June, the Kaklova Dam was destroyed. A lot of irrigation was lost because indeed this dam was providing water to a lot of irrigation districts that rely on these dams here in, in the south of Ukraine, in the Kherson region. So it sounds like there's a potential then to build back better and to expand irrigation. And I think you mentioned maybe a couple of decades ago that there was more irrigation, but it was destroyed way back. Yes. So before the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, Ukraine had more irrigation. But after the collapse, basically, socioeconomic and political reasons caused a disuse of irrigation. And actually, irrigation decreased by 85% from the collapse of the Soviet Union till 2021. And this is for various reasons, mainly socio-economic, but also political reasons. For example, in some places, the metals used to produce, to build the channels was dug up and used as a scrap metal and sold on the market. So here brings in also the issue of economic water scarcity, right? So where you have water, available for irrigation, but in many regions, you don't have irrigation infrastructure for socioeconomic and political reasons. And about uh, 25% of croplands 
are affected by economic water scarcity. So you had green water scarcity, you have a, a lower productivity because of this uh, less uh, precipitation to meet crop water demand. You need irrigation and you have the water locally available for irrigation, but you don't have the infrastructure. And indeed, I think there is huge potential to make target investments in some target regions to build this infrastructure and uh, sustainably intensify agriculture. Right. I would guess that sub-Saharan Africa is one of those regions where currently we only have 1% to 2% irrigation. And in some regions, the, the water is probably there for sustainable irrigation expansion, but the economic factors are probably a barrier. Yes. And also training for farmers, no? because in many regions, farmers uh, don't know how to manage these new technologies that can be irrigation, but also fertilizers. They don't know how to apply it. And so it's very important also uh, to build this infrastructure adapting to the local context. Okay, so maybe some techniques that works in a region are, are going to work in another region. And one of the, I think one way to expand irrigation in a very sustainable way is a solar power drip irrigation. So you have renewable energy because we didn't mention this, but irrigation uses a lot of energy to pump water, especially when it's deep groundwater. So it's a lot of energy and a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. And this energy today is mainly from diesel, so it's mainly from fossil fuels. So it's, uh, the way forward uh, is uh, solar power drip irrigation because drip irrigation is very efficient uh, irrigation and basically reduce the amount of water that you need to pump and also reduce uh, water scarcity. So I think this has a lot of potential, but has a very large capital cost, but on the other end, very low operational costs. Well, we've covered a lot of different topics, Lorenzo, and your research, and, and we still haven't covered probably a quarter of your research. I really appreciate how you bring so many factors together. And today we focused on water and food and green, blue, and a little bit on economic water scarcity. But also I think there's some positives to, for, and your work helps identify where we could improve situations to increase food production with sustainable irrigation and make more climate resilient systems. And so I think that's extremely valuable. And I know you've done a lot of work on greenhouse gases and agriculture and energy and everything, and maybe that would be a topic for another podcast. But I really appreciate your time and greatly admire your work and bring so many insights. And it's fantastic that you are working with the World Bank then, because I mean, when they work in developing countries, there's often very little data available for them to start off these projects. And so the analysis that you do with these different remote sensing data sets and other data sets really gives them a kickstarts, those projects, I am sure. So our guest today was Lorenzo Rosa, who works at the Department of Global Ecology at Stanford University. Thank you so much, Lorenzo, for taking the time to chat. Thank you very much, Bridget.